morning, Village Church. My name's David. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be together. Everyone looks very alive. Time change is good. Uh, we have an extra hour this morning, so you can just buckle up for a 90-minute sermon, all right? We've got our youth kids here. How was Denny's this morning? Good? Very jealous, very jealous. All right. Hey, we're into it. We're in Acts uh, 12, and we're cruising along through the book of Acts. It's been really, really great, and I'm excited to be in here this morning. Let's get right into it. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So the Bible historians put this date around A.D. 44. We know this because Herod Agrippa the first died in A.D. 44. And I don't know if you just heard the scripture reading, uh, but you might have no- noticed that Herod's going to die this morning. And the biblical timeline is validated by all sorts of secular historians who document the rulers of Rome and its territories. And so we know that the emperor at this time was in 44 AD was Claudius, and we know this is the year that Herod died. So Claudius, the Roman emperor, was an emperor who, who built a lot of roads and aqueducts and all the cool Roman things and became emperor in typical Roman fashion, which is all of your other brothers were murdered. And so it's just like, eh, I guess it's me, right? Very classic. And Claudius appointed Herod Agrippa I as king over the lands of Judea, and his rule was continuing to expand at this time. And, and he sought favor with Rome, and he also sought favor with the Jewish people, and particularly the Pharisees. And so really in the Bible, you see this, this name Herod all throughout, and yet it's not the same Herod every time, okay? And then, uh, so we see Herod the Great, we see Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa I, and Herod Agrippa II. Antipas, or Herod the Great, we see right away in Matthew chapter 2, and he really establishes um, just the high quality of the Herodian family. His first order is to murder babies, right? Trying to seek and kill baby Jesus. So it really comes on the scene um, with a good first step there. And then we see the second one, Herod Antipas. This would be the Herod that, that we see when Jesus himself is on trial, right? It's also the, the Herod that we see um, who kills John the Baptist. And that was the son of Herod the Great and the nephew of Herod Antipas is Herod Agrippa I, who we see here this morning. He kills James and imprisons Peter. And then his son is Herod Agrippa II. This is the, the king that we would, we'll see later in Acts 25 and 26 when Paul is arrested. And, and Paul stands before Herod Agrippa and Festus. And, and he, Paul shares his whole testimony to Herod. And basically, basically, in the end, Agrippa says, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's like, yeah, kind of. And so the, the Herodian family are descendants of Esau. So, so they are descendants of Abraham and Isaac, but, but they are not descendants of Jacob. And so they are not Israelites, but they are family, right? And in general, these rulers wanted to keep Rome happy. They wanted Rome to be happy, and Rome is happy when there's peace. And to be the ruler over Jerusalem and the Jewish people, you got to keep the Jewish people happy. And so this new Christian movement was a huge threat to the peace and the happiness of the Jewish people. And it's really well documented that Agrippa was very successful politically by appeasing the Jews and participating in their culture and their practices and, and, and um, really adopting Judaism himself. And, he had gained a lot of favor with this emperor, and he, he ruled over as much land as Herod the Great had. Okay? So we good so far? All the history nerds are satisfied? 
Everyone else is not happy but willing to continue, okay? All right. Look at verse 2. So he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So quickly here, James, this is not James, the author of the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would really lead the, the Jerusalem church after Peter. This would be James, the apostle, the first of the disciples of Jesus to be martyred. And we see it here in Acts chapter 12, that James is killed by Herod. And Herod, it seems, is just willing to do whatever makes the Jewish people happy. And we're talking, of course, about religious Judaism, not ethnic Judaism, because Peter and James were themselves Jewish men. But Herod was not for or against the Jews. He was not for or against the Christians. If you're familiar with politics um, in any country, at any moment in history, you should be familiar with this concept. Herod just loved Herod, right? Okay? There's no moral compass, there's no principle, there's no standard, there's no respect for right or wrong. You see it really clearly here. What, sh what, what should we do with James? Let's kill him. How did that go? Well, the people loved it. All right, let's kill someone else, right? A very simple political strategy here, not based on any principle, right? And you see the depravity of a society that's run by evil men who submit to no one. They don't love justice, they only love themselves. But in the midst of this evil and this kind of chaos and really the beginning of this Christian persecution, we see a really beautiful and, and solid defense of Christianity that has, has really passed down all the way for thousands of years. Because these men are threatened with death, not because of something that they cannot change, like the color of their skin. They were Jewish men in a Jewish culture. They were in danger because they proclaim that Jesus Christ was the Messiah who rose from the dead. And at any moment, they could spare their own lives just by shutting up, right? It was very simple. They could go back to what they had always known, Jewish culture, practices, temple worship, fishing, okay? Not bad. <laughs> and so many great Christian apologists have said throughout the centuries, who would risk their life for a lie, right? It's one of the key principles of Christian apologetics is the original disciples who walked with Jesus. The eyewitnesses who walked with Jesus saw his miracles, saw his death, ate hundreds and thousands of meals with him, walked, some say, 20,000 miles with Jesus. They chose death before denial of Christ. It's really fascinating for us, right? that someone would risk their life for a lie, that all of these people would risk their lives for something that the world says they were lying about, right? And more importantly, who risks their life for a lie that has no benefit, right? I mean, at least if you're a criminal, there's some like serious upside, right? You've seen some good like bank robbery movies, maybe thinking about like Ocean's Eleven. Like the last scene in Ocean's Eleven is pretty cool. They got a lot of stuff. That one guy buys like a sound system, right? And modern skeptics of Christianity are, are forced to claim that these guys were all coordinating to spread a lie, that they saw the resurrection of Jesus. But they have no answer for why these men would choose to suffer. And they ignore 
just how dangerous it was to believe this. And they, were, they ignore the fact that there was no reward for lying about this. I mean, think about other sorts of religious lies, right? I mean, at least when prosperity gospel preachers lie on TV and twist the gospel, at least they get filthy rich, right? <laughs> I can see the motivation behind that. Last week on Reformation Sunday, Bowman talked about the Roman Catholic Church selling indulgences to buy your way into heaven. I could use some indulgence money, right? Couldn't we all? I could twist the scriptures and lie about Jesus, get an extra 300 bucks and fill up half my gas tank, right? This is tough times. (laughs) And all of this sounds great unless God is real and unless I'm accountable to the truth, right? Last week when we were celebrating the, the Reformation Sunday and specifically the, the, the sermon on the five solas of the Reformation, this movement began with Martin Luther nailing his theses. But I don't know if you, if you know this, but um, the Catholic Church, they weren't really happy about it. So they like weren't. Uh, and so the story continues that they demanded that Martin Luther come and gather with them and, and really recant his writings And this happened in the German city called Worms. And he was told that he must recant his writings and and he had good reason to believe that he was going to be killed. But he chose to defend his positions over three days and then he ended with these famous words. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. The spirit of Martin Luther is the spirit that we find in the early church. And these first apostles, as they begin to risk their lives one after another for Christ, refusing to recant that they have seen Jesus die and be raised. You can call the disciples crazy, you can call them foolish, but you cannot escape the reality that the men who walked with Jesus were willing to die before they would deny that they saw him raised to life, okay? And so James is the first apostle killed, and now it looks like Peter will be next. And he has every reason to believe he will be next. Look at verse 4. And when he had seized him, this is Herod, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. It's intense. The four squads of soldiers would be 16 soldiers, four soldiers in a squad, okay? You got to know your squad language. I know squad is a cool word again, youth kids. Can we confirm this? Is it cool to say squad? Except your squad doesn't have swords, right? So your squad is maybe not that cool. Something to think about. (laughs) Tell your parents you need an authentic Roman sword for Christmas, okay? (laughs) Not sure what the supply chain issues are on those right now. (laughs) So one squad would guard Peter every six-hour shift, and there would be two guarding the door and two chained to him, physically chained to him. They took this very seriously, and this wouldn't be surprising because we know in Acts chapter 5, Peter was imprisoned and Peter escaped. 
that God rescued him. He's thrown in the prison by the high priest. An angel of the Lord came and just simply let them out. So there's a little bit of a risk here with Peter. So Peter has already escaped prison, and it's very embarrassing for the rulers when this happens. So we're going to try this whole, like, chaining them to our, to our guards thing. And clearly, Herod still thinks he's dealing with men, and he's not dealing with God, right? The arrogance. And now everyone knows that the next day Herod will bring him out for a trial and likely an execution, as they just saw with James. But in verse 6, we see that Peter is not restless. He's not panicking. In fact, Luke actually tells us he was fast asleep. And so his future is in the hands of God, and he's able to sleep <laughs> between two Roman soldiers. Look at verse 7. Luke describes what happens that night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that, that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought, he was seeing a vision. And so here in Acts chapter 12, we see something that you can find throughout Scripture from beginning to end, is that we see the foolishness of men who fight against God. Men like Herod. Think about just the silliness of putting a, someone in shackles, thinking that that's going to keep them in chains if God himself wants them out of chains, right? And think about that. These shackles in Rome would have been made of iron. In the Roman Empire, they took power in many ways through their, their use of, of great metals and particularly iron. They conquered Spain and northern Africa and began extracting large amounts of iron ore. And they would create weapons and tools and, and prison chains. And imagine men working the ground to extract iron and, and creating these shackles. And you get so caught up in the, the glory of the Roman Empire and the power of the Roman Empire and its systems and its structures and the way it functions and rules the world. And you forget the God who made all these things. The God who made the earth and its metals and its minerals. You think God can't break a man free from iron that he created? Do we think that Jesus was held on the cross because, because the iron spikes are strong enough to hold an adult male? Right? Or was Jesus held on the cross because he chose to be there? He chose to stay there, as the Bible tells us, right? Look at verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. The angel's like, I'm done. I, was, I committed the one street. <laughs> when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So Peter kind of seems to be in a bit of a daze. We know from verse 9, he thought he was just seeing a vision. And now it becomes real, and the angel departs, and you can imagine the relief. I mean, he, he really did believe he was going to be killed the next day. It says he saw an iron gate, and it opens, and he simply walks 
through. It's incredible. I don't know about you, this is also what the Spirit of the Lord does for me when I'm at like a family Thanksgiving and there's two people talking about their dogs. I see a door and the Spirit of the Lord just guides me through and, <laughs> and I simply walk out, right? All glory to God. <laughs> Look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Then he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. This would be a different James that he's talking about here since we know James the apostle was killed. This would probably be James, the brother of Jesus. And when the church family had been gathered to pray for Peter that night, it's really in, in encouraging for us. It's inspiring for us. And then what's not inspiring is when they don't actually believe God can do anything, right? <laughs> if you've ever felt bad about praying with a lack of faith, this will probably help you a little bit, right? Because they're literally praying for Peter to be rescued. And when the servant girl Rhoda says, hey guys, uh, Peter's actually at the door, right? They say, you are out of your mind. <laughs> and, Poor little Rhoda, she's like, I'm sorry, what were we praying for again? And God can do incredible things despite our lack of faith, right? They didn't even believe it could be him at the door. Look at verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Again, you see the foolishness of fighting against God. Kings don't like when they're not in control, right? You have one unarmed Jewish fisherman, and you can't guard him with 16 soldiers. And rather than allowing the reality of this miracle to bring you to your knees, to be humbled and broken before the God who is in control of all things and can do all things. Herod does what hardened hearts do. He just grabs hold of whatever he can control. And so in furious anger, he just executes 16 soldiers who have done nothing wrong. I think about what Jesus said to the man who was previously leading the charge, persecuting Christians. Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus, why are you kicking against the goads? Some of you guys aren't familiar with goad language in general agriculture terms. Youth kids, you get some, get some farming jobs. The imagery here is of an oxen on a farm with a farmer using a sharp cattle prod or a goad to get them moving in the right direction. But, but often the stubborn oxen would kick against the sharp part and harm themselves. And the expression that's used by Jesus as Saul is persecuting the church 
is meant to say, your resistance to me will destroy you. You will destroy yourself resisting me. And for Herod here, it's the same. Your resistance will destroy you. You just watched a miracle. You could be humbled by this. You could repent in this. But you double down and kill 16 innocent men. And in the end of verse 19, we see Herod returns to Caesarea from Judea and the Jerusalem area. He's returning to the capital city of, of this Roman province. And, and now starting in verse 20, Luke includes the story of the end days of Herod's life. Look at it, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. It's pretty humbling, right? I think you see in here what we, what we should know in our hearts is that we are, we're all one moment away from returning to the earth. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, all are from the dust and to dust all shall return. You can walk through life today with your head high and with your bank account full and you could be buried in the ground by Saturday. What does that mean for us? <laughs> does it mean that we hide inside of our houses? Does it make sure we <laughs> make our kids wear a helmet all the time? Stop eating at Denny's? <laughs> Certainly not, okay? No, it means you give God the glory on every day that you are on this earth because you're not the king of this world and your days are numbered as were Herod's and Peter's and James's. But David, won't that just make me spend my days afraid to think about my days being numbered? The answer is this, we fear God and out of that righteous fear, we live fearless lives. That's a Christian life. Peter and James had no kingdoms, no armies, no power. All they had was the gospel, and really all they had was certain death. And they were fearless before men. But why would God strike down Herod on this particular day? His pride was nothing new. His sin was nothing new. Why did God not strike down Saul on the road to Damascus, but instead revealed himself and saved him? Why do some apostles get rescued and others die? God sends his angels to rescue Peter, a humble servant of God, a fisherman who met Jesus and, and loved Jesus, denied Jesus to protect himself. <laughs> and God strikes down kings in an instant for their pride. The point of these stories is not for us to find all of the control switches for God's power. If I do this, then God will do this. If, let's analyze the actions of God and figure out how to manipulate him in our favor, which actions we want to avoid. The point of a story like this is for us to just be humble before a holy God, right? And for us to see the, 
absolutely radical difference between being a child of God and being an enemy of God. And we get to gather here in this room and we get to declare that we are children of God and that's a huge gift, amen? Yes. I was thinking this. The purpose of your life is not to come up with the best strategy to deploy God in your plans. The purpose of your life is to love God with everything you have and just see where it takes you. See the difference. Your temptation and my temptation is to just wipe off the kitchen table and spread out our map and our battle plan for life and the things we want. And God is just the biggest piece on the map that we can move around to solve all the different problems that come in life. That's not what God's offering to us. Herod Agrippa was a man who worshipped only himself. He does enough things to keep the Roman government happy. He does enough things to keep his power. He keeps the Jewish people happy. But there is no doubt that if the Christians had more power, then Herod would have been playing along to appease them just the same. Herod would be running around saying, look, I'll put a, I'll put a Bible verse sticker on my chariot, no problem. Jeremiah 29, 11, done, right? ESV, obviously, right? Herod knows. Everything's just a game to him, right? The unregenerate heart opens the Bible and reads stories through the lens of their own agenda, their own plans. So if this God is real, I should probably do this and not this to avoid this negative outcome and maybe get this thing that I want. This is religious pluralism. This is, we worship ourselves, but we save room on the shelf of our pantheon for the God of the Bible. If he has some things to bring to the table, right? we save a little bit of room for God and the things he can bring to the table. The answer for us all throughout the Bible is that God isn't interested in being added to your collection of good luck charms. In fact, he says really clear, Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord, there is no other. If you can have a shelf in your house for all of the gods that you worship and all of the things that you put your trust in, that shelf better have room for just one God, okay? Choose wisely. And then it wraps up verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so the church of God, the people of God, they march on. The people of God have lost James, but the mission of God continues. And I just wanna finish this morning by highlighting a couple temptations that we face as God's people in light of this story. I think the first one's really simple. We have a desire for an easy life, right? Anybody just tired, right? Anybody just right now, very tired. Probably a little less tired. It was a good day. Time changed. Good day for this question. Get an extra hour and yet still tired. <laughs> when I look at a chapter like this, I'm reminded that I spend so much of my energy, my thoughts, my prayers, just wanting life to be more smooth and simple 
and easy. I love Jesus, but I don't want to struggle day after day. Maybe your first thought on a Monday morning is just, I just want this week to be easy or easier than last week. <laughs> and we look to the early church this morning and, and our gospel mission is encouraged, right? But God cares how we feel. God cares the struggles we face. God hears us and our cries. But ultimately, God has given us something greater than a desire for an easy life. Amen, Pilchers? Yeah. A second thing really quick is a desire for a fair life, right? Saul's the leader of the persecution of the church back in Acts chapter 9. And God radically saves him. Then Herod takes over as the leader of the persecution of the church, Acts chapter 12, and God strikes him down. James is an apostle who walks with Jesus, arrested by Herod for preaching Christ, and God allows him to be killed with a sword. Peter is an apostle, walks with Jesus, arrested by Herod for preaching Christ, and God rescues him miraculously from the hands of Herod. Who is this God who just does whatever he wants, right? And who is this God who allows so much evil to flourish around us day after day, and everything seems to work out for so many people around us. Maybe you feel tired of struggling this morning. Maybe you feel tired of struggling in ways that you feel so many people don't have to struggle. Maybe you feel like you wonder why God never seems to think it's your turn for better circumstances. I think we can see these desires as we read a passage like this. I think there's a simple answer for us as we think about our life as Christians and what will be the rudder of our hearts. It can't be safety that steers our lives. It can't be security that steers our lives. It can't be fairness or avoiding hardship or avoiding suffering. And it can't be acceptance and being loved by the world and this culture. Instead, I think our answer is really simple. Our answer is to desire God and receive every circumstance with faith and unwavering trust. We have a desire for things to be easier. We have a desire for things to be more fair. And yet ultimately, all things fall in line by God's wisdom if our desire is for God himself. Yes? You can't always control the oppressive leaders of the world. You can't always control whether you will be in freedom or in chains but you can control where you put your trust. You can control the God you love and the God you serve. And you can decide that you're gonna be a Christian who, who takes all of their worries and fears into the living room and gathers up with God's people to pray. And you can decide right now that God is not a means to an end, but God is the ultimate beginning and end, amen? That's good news for us, Phyllis Church, that, that the God over every story we find in Scripture is the God who reigns over every detail of our life today. I don't know if your week this week is going to be more like James's week or Peter's week. Hopefully, neither. Let's bring our worries to God this morning, Phyllis Church. Whatever you face, and things that you're thinking about, the things that feel heavy for you this morning, 
get to respond in worship this morning, I pray that you would spend some time bringing these things to God. He hears us. He listens to you. Clearly, he hears the prayers of his people, and he hears the prayers of us this morning, and so let's worship him as he deserves. Amen? Would you pray with me? God, we just, we look at your word and we see clearly that you, you are over all and in all. God, we just declare that you're a good God. That you don't explain yourself all the time to us. You don't, you don't have to tell us why things happen the way they happen. You've just given us yourself to trust and to believe. God, we pray that we would feel the heavy weight that we carry the gospel with us. That we do have a calling that's greater than how we feel and the circumstances we're going to face and the pain we will endure. God, we pray that you would help us to see that we also have such a light burden because you've taken away our sin and our future is secure and you've given us yourself and so we pray God that you would take our burdens this morning and and that we would see clearly that, that we belong to the God who is the orchestrator of all things and that's enough for us forgive us, God, for wanting to have control over every step of our lives, for being afraid of the future. We ask, God, that you just give us more of your spirit to believe deeply that you are a good God in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.